Hello, and welcome to the My Best Teacher podcast with me, Dan Worth. Today's guest is music legend Keris Matthews, who shot to fame as lead singer of Catatonia in the 1990s before becoming a solo artist and producing numerous albums under her own name. She's also written her own cookery book, Where the Wild Cooks Go, and two children's books, and of course, presents a hugely popular radio show on BBC Six Music. On the podcast, she chats to us about fond memories of primary school. It was just an endless romp through kind of singing and dancing and music and poetry and science. The teachers that inspired her. You know, with the best teachers, they will sort of light a fire in the pupils that never, ever go out. Why playing the recorder in school opened up a world of music to her. Every child had an instrument in hand and, and some time to, to make a noise, you know. That was enough for me. After that, I got my, I started collecting recorders and then got totally addicted to music, got a guitar, started playing the piano. And we chat about her new album that fuses her love of poetry and music. I love to hear people's voices. The voice gets you so much closer to the heart of the person. All that and lots more on the Tez My Best Teacher podcast. Hi, Keris. Welcome to the Tez My Best Teacher podcast. Great to chat with you. I think it'll make for a very interesting conversation. Um, let's set, let's start and set the scene though. Sort of, can you tell us a little bit about where you went to school? I guess starting from primary school and, and going through the sort of journey through your education. That's different schools. Well, I, I was born in Cardiff and then I went to school there, Welsh language nursery, Welsh language school. Then we moved to Swansea when I was seven, and I started going to little school right there on the Swansea Bay Crescent. Mm. You know it, um, called Brynamore which is Hill of the Sea. And it was, well, my memories of it are just absolutely pristine, you know, in terms of it being faultless by now, you know, and at this point in life, it just seems idyllic. You know, the teachers were fab there. And it was, again, it was Welsh language, so only Welsh language spoken throughout all the subjects that were being taught, whether that was science or maths or whatever. But because I I think... Because it was through the Welsh language, it was also an endless, from from my memories, it was just an endless romp through kind of singing and dancing and music and poetry and science. Little trips outdoors, so nature. Then we had loads of estethavods, pottery even, playground games, all those rhymes, you know, doing like mm. cartwheels and doing the crab, you know, when you bend over. Yeah. <laughs> handstands against the walls, all the things. And British Bulldogs in the playground. All the things that have now been banned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in the British Bulldogs, I could see why that was banned because I, with one session, I ended up um, clashing with one of my classmates and he ended up in hospital with concussion and my front tooth has, has been dead ever since. Oh, really? Well, there you go. Yeah, memories of school <laughs> forever. <laughs> British Bulldogs well we played that at secondary school I mean I was not really that into it because I was not one of the, the biggest uh, lads some of my friends were very keen on the lunch times you know a lot of scrapes and bruises yeah <laughs> I don't think it'd be good for secondary school it's so physical but I suppose that's the attraction mm. and our before you get the impression of it being like green grass of home you know it was concrete like tarmac and, and brick walls so but but it was still fun like you do handstands against the wall and then you'd let you'd walk your legs down until you were making that bridge. Shape. Mm. And then you'd walk. Anyway, you'd be doing that all lunchtime. <laughs> it was fun. 
Anyway, I've, I've really enjoyed going back there today. Thanks for asking me. <laughs> and so obviously this is primary we've talked about here. And I mean, going to secondary school then, I'm presuming you sort of slightly curved your handstands and, and crab walks at secondary school. But again, was that a good play, good memories? And did you enjoy the subjects you, you sort of focused on at those schools? Um, secondary school became a bit more complex. Um, I think by the time I was 11, I was first on the bus um, and I was an hour on the bus going to school and an hour on the bus coming back. So I was first on the bus. So I started smoking at the age of 11. Because oh, right. I was so, <laughs> so getting in the back of the bus. Um, and, then, and then, you know, you get, you get towards being like a, a teenager with a sort of adult, going towards adulthood and, and starting to question the world around you. And mm. at the time, the, the nuclear war stuff going on in the news. And I just remember being, you know, very quickly wanting to leave school. So mm. it, was, it got a lot more complex quite quickly. Hmm. Were, were there any teachers either at that time or, or at primary though that you always have fond memories of? You felt that they sort of, you know, they got you or they were, you could see that what they were trying to achieve. And, and particularly looking back now, you think, yeah, actually they were, they were all right. You know, I have good memories of them. So many teachers. Um, there was one particular teacher called Mrs. Bowen. She got married and changed her name, but I remember her as Mrs. Um, that must have been a married name. That's it. So it was Mrs. Bowen. And, um, she used to take us, I don't think she liked being in the classroom. So you, she used to take us out all the time. Mm. And we ended up going on field trips, um, places like Margam. She teaches things that I've never, you know, you, you know, with the best teachers, they will sort of light a fire in the pupils that never, ever go out. Mm. And so many teachers did that for me, whether it was my music teachers or Mrs. Bowen, who taught us to look around you in, in the natural world and see what you can recognize and what functions they might have or what uses, like what's poisonous or, you know, the lichen, whether it's the flat lichen or the crusty one or the bushy one where you've got the clean air and the spots and the sycamore and the wood sorrel that you can eat and taste like lemon and mm. all these just take up, pick up and run for the rest of your life. And then you teach your children as well. So yeah, so many teachers and um, Mrs. Pugh was another one in um, primary school, you know, because it, it was really um, so many cultural things there that, you know, interest in my heritage and, and therefore with an interest that's in your own social history and, and your own heritage, it, it sort of bleeds into asking questions about people who have different heritage or English heritage and then French heritage and then, you know, pan world heritages mm -hmm. and how they do, you know, what you've got in common, but what you do differently and, and why. You know, I'm quite fascinated in like why, for instance, soda bread is made in Ireland, whereas we used to have like um, Welsh cakes. Why, why do these things become part of your traditions? Mm. And there's usually in Ireland, it was because of the way you can get peat. There was lots of peat, so you could all have individual fires and also the climate um, allowed for its soft flowers to grow more. That would then work better with a carbon bicarbonate of soda to, to make the soda bread. Anyway, it's really interesting. It's it's usually down to the the climate and the sort of that's easily grown around you. Um, and whereas in in UK we had communal bread ovens, whereas soda bread you can you can bake on your own individual fire. 
This is, this is great. Well, I feel, I feel like I'm in a, I feel like I'm in a sort of geography cookery lesson. This is great. But did uh, when you were talking about the lichens and the various things there, was that knowledge that you have directly from sort of Mrs. Bowen that Mrs. Bowen that you remember, and that sort of shows you know that passion that she ignited you. You've always just remembered those sort of facts and points of interest. Yeah, that's definitely from Mrs. Bowen. And mm. then after that, at the age of eleven, then I got hold of Roger Phillips's Wild Food Book, which kind of carries on and gives you even more knowledge about you know what you can. You know, he's the world fungus uh, expert and they've just put out a new book, actually, Roger. But also how to eat flowers. Most flowers are totally edible. Hmm. Not fox, not foxgloves, but, you know, just, just basically this, I think it's the, the fire, when you light that fire in, in hmm. a child and that child has it sort of a nascent interest that they didn't know in, in say, the natural world. And, and you'll you'll take them on this trip and then and you'll show interest in their um processing of this information mm. and then it's that the fire is lit and I, that's that's what i find uh, remarkable about you know the, the the work the job the role of a teacher yeah you're right absolutely there's sort of those little moments that can stay with someone and what an episode of the podcast um, with mira sayal she talks about like these little moments of a teacher saying something and it can last a lifetime but the teacher may not know that but it, it really yeah. does have that impact and you know carries through and like you say you're, you're sort of interest you've clearly had forever in those sort of in things as sort of teased out by that teacher who just sort of gave you that chance to, to discover that about yourself almost at that such a young age which is so lovely to hear about well that's that's the thing and um where I have been able to because it's so pivotal you'll carry the memories of your favorite teachers around with you and where I where I have been able to and when our paths have crossed I'm like thank you so much you know because it just is so precious hmm. So you have had a chance to see some of your former teachers then and, you know, let's say cross paths with them. Well, there was this, this other teacher in secondary school called Mrs. Ellis. And Mrs. Ellis used to get really frustrated with me because she was a second on the bus. So she'd come on, it was full of smoke. <laughs> <laughs> um, she knew, she sort of got to know me and realised like I was either 100% committed or 100% totally zoned out. But she never gave up on me. So she taught biology and so then and I was in this school for about five years and she did when we were on the, these endless bloody bus trips to and from school she um she said she'd, she'd come down to the back and she'd go Karis look out of the window that's an old man's beard growing there um actually not with an English accent but with a Swansea accent <laughs> so every time I see you know old man's beard is that wild clematis clematis um, you know, which which looks like um, Father Christmas's beard, and uh, I just I can't help but think of Mrs. Ellis. And the other thing she used to do was get us in biology class, and um, go, Mark, you're squinting, come here. And then she'd put the child, whoever it was, she'd shout it out, and she'd do the eye test on her blackboard, and to test if that person is short sighted. And she she spotted so many kids that were mm. short sighted. Just because they started to squint, it was hilarious. That's that's quite. Do you know? No pun intended. I was about to say that's quite far sighted, but um, because because a lot of you hear a lot of people say, don't they, that when they were at school, they always felt they were put down by the teachers because they didn't appreciate they actually had a an eyesight issue and that they couldn't read the board properly. And I think schools are much more aware of that now. But it sounds like this teacher obviously was sort of quite ahead of the curve in spotting that, and then presumably or hopefully then trying to help rectify that situation. 
she loved it. She really loved it. I think that was her favourite thing, spotting kids who, who needed some sort of uh, input. <laughs> but she she get really frustrated with me. I remember that one thing that again, you know, these these comments never leave you. But she'd like um, you see the problem with you, Karis, is you look like you're not listening. You're looking out the 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 fields around you, and you're looking at, and you're not listening. And then when I ask you a question, you always know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you sort of you did mention music teacher briefly, and I feel it would be remiss if we didn't touch on that maybe a little bit more, given you know the career you went on to have. I mean, again, your sort of interest in music was that I presume that was already there sort of innately. But again, did your music teachers help you sort of really discover that, or give you points of interest and say you should investigate this type of music, or have you thought about trying this and just helped you forward in, in any way? I think I need to give massive like kudos to the council systems back then, hmm. and money that taxpayers gave the councils or however it works governments however whomever is responsible for enabling there was enough money to give free music lessons to primary school pupils mm. all of them and i remember at the time um that there's come a certain point in your primary education where you get a recorder put in your hand and you do three blind money <laughs> that was always the first time and then, then I remember there was a choice. All the clarinets had gone. There was only vi- violins and half of them were broken. But there was a choice to start picking up different instruments, classical instruments. And I don't think that happens anymore. You know, and, you, and if you do have the chance for, I've got one child left in primary school, you have to put on the waiting list and then you have to pay. So it's only the ones with a bit of spare cash to pay for the extra lessons that can actually have classical lessons but you know there's that element of things that that you know during the 80s I was in primary school in the 80s um it was rich you know we had the opportunity every child had an mm. instrument and, and some time to to make a noise you know and, and and then that was enough for me after that I got my I started collecting recorders I was such a recorder bore <laughs> like sizes of um recorders including the fife which is like like the flute version and the bass recorder and then got totally addicted to music got a guitar started playing the piano um but the other thing we had as well was the west glam youth orchestra so and we had courses so mm. we could go on courses paid for by the council so we even had a recorder like a, a residential recorder course um course yeah <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it? Oh my god! But for the teachers, I mean. Um, but it was great. You know, you I grew up basically. You know, you mix with different schools, and I, I honestly, some of the best times of my life have been doing those music courses that mm. are no longer viable for most councils. So, like Tainted Love in 1981 takes me right back to student accommodation in Swans University, legs out of the window, God knows what we were doing up there because it was about four or five floors up, singing along to Tainted Love, you know, yeah. Mark Alman. Yeah, but what you mean, but this was part, I'm part of a recorder, conf, the conference or course you were on. I was a bit older then, I was 11, so I was playing, I was given an oboe um, mm. and I got a this orchestra with the oboe um, and it was so much fun, oh my God. It, we found uh, some homebrew in the cupboard um, that the Swansea students had left behind, thinking yeah. they'd locked it away. Or the, the the brass section found it and and shared it with the wind section, which was me and my yeah. friends. Anyway, it was carnage, but yeah. it was so 
fun. So much bloody fun. Was, was that, that... Yeah, yeah. And the, oh, sorry, I do talk so much. Oh no, that's, that's great. That's what we want. I just, I just thought it was interesting. You said like the brass section shared it with the wind section, but I mean, like, did the string section were they not part of it? it was like, oh, don't share it with them, or did it? You know, just in, into orchestra rivalries. It was so funny. There was one double bass player that was was kind of part of the mischievous crowd. But, you know, you can take orchestras and I've, I've, I've spoken to a lot of like classical players um, about this, you know, from one side, actually, the, you know, playing in the classical orchestra is one of the most rock and roll things can happen and do happen. Like mm. orchestras get to drink during the um, interval. Mm. You never, you never do that. And they, most rock bands now don't even drink. You know, they do like Mick Jagger does 45 minutes warm up before any of his. <laughs> Classical players like hammered when they're playing like Bach and Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and they're hammered. <laughs> and um, you know stories of uh, um, singers, you know choral singers doing doing all these like um, zipline things on the on the slippery marble floor of cathedrals and something's. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're the hidden rock and rollers, uh, classical players. But yeah, but all of this is you know is part of the growing up in Wales as well. You know, I can't underestimate the um, sort of by osmosis of growing up in a culture where, it, again, from my memory, there was just music and mm. poetry and song um, everywhere. And, and it was by everyone, you know, literally like on the football, ter- no, on the rugby terraces, in the pubs, you know, in school, if you weren't singing along and, and singing harmonies and making them up. And and hearing about our bards every time you sing the national anthem, you hear about poetry mm. and the love of the turn of phrase and the sound of the voice, the Richard Burton's and your promises. And yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, we 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 had Kate Clanch. Kate Clanchy was on recently as a guest, and she the, the poet and, and writer. Yeah, and she um she's talking about that and the value of poetry. And you know, you, poetry is sort of a little bit in resurgence in society, but certainly the way you describe it in your school, it sounds like it wasn't just like something you went and did for a lesson. It was part of school poetry and word and, and singing was just sort of embedded throughout which which sounds lovely and, and obviously must have really made a big impression i presume on you but also most pupils there probably could hard to not be sort of like some part of you just to sort of embed in your in your consciousness i think it's a cultural thing mm. it depends on where you were brought up like in in somalia it's the oral tradition is of storytelling and, and the poetry is alive and well you know i've had long conversations with know that i've met there's a big diaspora of uh, somali people in cardiff mm. and you know we have these sort of like conversations comparing ancient welsh poetry with the uh, somalian epics and various words that are used so many times in in poetry and I, I, I do think it's cultural in that sense but even having said that there's a massive boom in poetry pan britain mm. at the moment you know and this dance between spoken word and performance um page and stage you know it's it's wide open right now mm. and the, the, the poetry world's experienced a massive boom in sales of even poetry books mm. so I, I just think it's just knocking on the door of the mainstream but it's it, actually maybe it's got opened i mean we saw that five minute epic during the inauguration that went yes, viral of course yeah my thing about the definition of poetry it, it's so in a, it needs to be cracked open from the narrow confines it's in because if poetry is about craft of words and communication, then we're dealing with poetry every day mm. when we're writing emails, when we're writing tweets, uh, when we're witnessing the likes of Trump, 
with his like nutshell messages, mm. you know, whether it's for good or for, go- for bad, that is using words and using the power of words to, to communicate. Mm. And poetry is alive and well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, um, it's the definition that's the problem or the definition that's sort of like a hangover from, you know, ha- having to be sat down in a class and learn by road Chaucer or um, Coleridge or, you know, without, without realizing actually, well, that's one kind of poetry and one kind of discipline, but we enjoy poetry every day. Mm. You know, poetry can be a walk in the park. If, if the rustle of the wind moves you, you know, if, if, if an emotion comes and, and you put it into a, you, you sort of, recognize it and can can describe what what made you think those things to me that's enough that's poetry that be, that goes into the world of poetry mm. and the essence of a great poet therefore is to um to communicate that in using words you know to mm. nail that to say evoke emote and say so much with so little and beautifully done you know that that's yeah. the sort of holy grail but actually poetry is everywhere we're talking about poetry, so let's talk about your new album, uh, We Come From The Sun, which is sort of, I don't know how to quite better describe it, but it has poets speaking, some really beguiling, captivating music, and it sort of runs us throughout the album. It's not like one track, then another track. We were talking about this before, it kind of runs through. So was there a reason that you felt this was the right time to do something like this, that you always wanted to, to do so, you know, produce an album of this nature, or was it something that you were thinking about and, and the things we're talking about here and you thought there's something here where I can sort of bring music together and great poets and great writing and really put something together that, that I don't know. Cause so I was listening to it and it really, it did feel of the time. It felt quite current and it felt to sort of fit the kind of the lockdown mood and the strange sort of time we're in and this sort of, you know, the way the sounds come in and the voices and the different types of voice. I mean, again, tell us a bit about, you know, what, what led you to put this together. It's definitely been an escape. And a lot of people are saying it, it feels kind of like a warm hug when we can't have one mm. in terms of it being life affirming and, and positive, which is sort of like, we need to fool each other right now mm. to get log of, of the reality, anything to help keep energies up, you know? So it was a total escape. We, we, um, we worked on the music and the compositions and the sounds remotely, but we got the chance to go to Abbey Road to record the poets. Um, but the, the, the main impetus for it was because there's so much great writing coming out at the minute. You mentioned Kate Clancy. I'm a massive fan. Mm. In fact, I've, I've requested that she come on the, the radio show because I've been meaning to um, you know, invite her on and, and ask her. She's got so many great ways to enable people that haven't found the confident or have not had that door open to them mm. of how to, you know, good ways of approaching the beginnings of poetry and that, I think that would be wonderful and the stuff that she's got children writing or the, the, the things that she enables the children to write I should say has been phenomenal mm. you know but um yeah we mentioned Kate Clancy there's so much so much great writing is coming out at the minute there's a massive emerging you know number of of wonderful new voices many different sort of voices and different perspectives and different backgrounds and different ways of writing but a lot of good stuff. And I've been working with, you know, I've got, I've run a, a pro- program, my radio shows. So I've been like really enjoying getting lost in the BBC archive and also working with Decca with their mm. archive it means finding the voices of Virginia Woolf or 
Lord Tennyson or Langston Hughes or Sarah Webster Fabio or Ted Hughes, Sylvia Plath, um, Amelia Earhart, um, Ernest Shackleton. I love to hear people's voices. Mm. The voice gets you so much closer to the heart of the person than a photograph would or mm. just read work in a way because it's just that suddenly all the, the borders are down and you're with that person. It's amazingly powerful. Anyway, so with Decca, they've got this massive archive of poets reading their own work, WBH. And that's quite surprising. So you'll hear WBH reading, you know, I shall arise now. And go. You imagine him having, you know, he's a very famous Irish poet. How does he sound? I will arise now and go to Ernest Frey. Very, very, you know, glass English yeah. accent. I mean, same as Evan Thomas, because at the time, if you were to get broadcast, that was the received pronunciation that was expected. And, but it's fascinating. And then there he is in this um, interview piece, there's a clip of him saying, and I wrote it to have the rhyme like this. So if anyone would read my poem in a free form, then it's not, you know, and he rants about people reading the poem mm. as if it's the prose, which I do. I'm guilty as charged. <laughs> tickled me so much that here's WBA2I imagined in my head to be this real free thinking like bohemian apart from his Ouija board playing and all the rest of it but you know there he was being a real stickler yeah. which I can imagine again what, what really strikes me interesting with poets is it is a craft and it you know the best poems sound like they've been and feel like they've been written you know effortlessly and as if it's this opening of a tap and this flow of work mm. comes out. Whereas actually the reality is a lot of practice, a lot of work, a lot of discipline, a lot of crossings out. You know, it's more like home or whittling a stick or carving yeah. a stick. There's a, there's a quote, isn't there, but I forget the poet. And he said, they said, like, what do you do? And he said, like, I wake up and I put a comma in my poem and then I spend half the day and I take it out again. And that was like the idea of being a poet is that kind of just like everything is needs finessing and thinking about and, doesn't it make you love poets even more? Because here's a here's a you know a tribe of people that want to dedicate their whole life on trying to perfect that. Mm. You know. Yeah. But anyway, I'm not, I'm sorry if I'm talkative. Um it's, I love talking about poetry. But there's this Decca archive, and I just thought, well, who's recording the voices of today? Mm. Um and I managed to persuade Decker that we should. <laughs> so that was the genesis of the idea. And if we're going to do this, then we might as well be a series because there are way too many great writers um, to record. And so if the series, if we start with the series, the doorbell might go in a minute, um, then it's going to be a series following the trajectory of one human life. So this one is the sort of emergent being genesis. So the poems are really hopeful. They're all varied with the idea that it's um, stories of a, like a journey about to begin um, or that a, 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 a being is born, but the, the idea that not one of us is born from a vacuum, that we come out on the backs of our ancestors, on, mm. on the surface of layers and layers and layers of history. Um, so that, that's it. I would say it's a it's a brilliant album. It's really different, and I think anyone listening to this, I highly recommend you can get on Spotify and all the other streaming services and so forth that we come from the sun. And it really is quite different. I think it'd be nice to sort of round it on the school side of things. Then, um, 
as a sort of final issue again were there any sort of things you, you've talked about this about, about this a bit but are there any good sort of i don't know school trips or days out or or sort of lessons particularly like, I don't know, really sort of wild lessons where you did science experiments or anything like that that you've all, again always just remembered because you clearly have some really good strong memories of school so it'd be nice to sort of hear any more about those as well <laughs> um well the two the two funniest moments that i remember we we were sort of a you know nurbanish school Swansea and they're in Wales still do a lot of the schools are involved in what's known as the Steadfords these are cultural festivals mm. um, so you can compete in, now you can compete in disco dancing visual arts sculpture but in, at, the, in the at the time when I was in school it was you know singing in cardant which is um I guess really complex but you, you're making up new airs on a, on traditional airs um choirs you get the drift we were in a folk dance group and uh, <laughs> and there weren't enough boys ever that sort of remained in the folk dance group. And then we had the, the competition, the Estelva that year was the dance was dance to Pelai, the ball dance. <laughs> it just makes me laugh. So they made, they made, it's not even that funny, but they made us sew squares of, of acrylic uh, wool to, to, <laughs> to sew around like plastic, you know, beach balls. Mm. And um and we had like the most ragtaggle bunch of dancers and ragtangle taggle outfits to compete with this so-called ball dance. And we got into <laughs> we got into competition. <laughs> we got into competition <laughs> stages and the, these balls are just unraveling and, and one point, one point during during the competition, one of the lads, his ball just catapulted the crowd and hit the um, edge, the, the the judging panel on one of them on the head. <laughs> didn't win that one. No, I was going to say, dare I ask if you if you won? That's <laughs> for our uh, ambition. Yes, um, that, is that, that one memory, the balls just unraveling. You know, these these squares of acrylic wool would just stretch. They were literally, they were catapults. Anyway, so that, that was one. And then the other one involved um, Mrs. Ellis, but also my friend, and I'm going to mention her name. She won't mind, I think. Catherine Sharp, right? So every lunchtime, it was this secondary school, myself and Catherine and another girl called Elsa would go to the backfield. Um, and remember the rabbits? There was a myxomatosis. Mm-hmm. I would say the, the, the disease, remember, all the rabbits died. And we found this rabbit dying of whatever the M word disease was called. But anyway, besides that, we'd have a cigarette. And then um, it was Mrs. Ellis, the, 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 the myopic uh, spotting teacher, or the teacher that spotted myopic people, <laughs> came, came down to the back backfield where nobody else usually went. And then we'd have people like on the lookout for us. And then somebody said, Mrs. Ellis is on the way down. So we quickly got our fags. They were regals that you bought single for 5p from the um from the arcade in Chanesley, um, where you play pool. Um, so we got our cigarettes and put them under our jumpers. Now at the time those jumpers were also acrylic. And so Mrs. Alice was talking there, we were on best behavior. You know, yes, Mrs. Alice, no, Mrs. Alice. And uh, Catherine and Catherine Sharp's jumpers <laughs> started smoking. Not only was it smoking, but there was this sort of orange sun of melting acrylic because it was they were green jumpers but when they melted it was turning like bright orange mm. so it was larger and larger and larger this hole and we were all like trying to put our backs to a jumper and fluffing the, the stinky 
dank, you know, sharp smell of burning plastic away from Mrs. Alice. That was quite funny. Talking about your album again, then. Um, obviously, another we should mention as well that Lem Cisse is on it. Another Tez, my best teacher, uh, podcast guest. Um, again, his, his poem is really interesting and, and sort of mixes football and, and again, it's got a really cool sort of like, again, correct me if I sort of describe it wrong, but there's, there's like a sort of synth piano, quite fast moving piano underneath it and two sort of poetry and that, that sound, you don't immediately think they go together, but the moment you hear it, it really captures your ears. Again, when you were putting the music together, did you set out to try and put what I would say is, you know, unexpected music to poetry or did it just come naturally as like, the two things came together like what was the how did the process work well you know when you when you do try and do this dance first first and foremost i just want to give kudos to the poets and, and great poems mm. because they don't need anything <laughs> they don't need another cheek of it for me to come and add it but because i'm not afraid to do that because in my heritage actually when you go back into history that the the bards always used to accompany themselves either with a beating of a, um, a massive sort of adult-sized stick to the rhythm of the uh, strict meter poems that they mm. wrote um, to mobilize army, armies or to sort of motivate or entertain the communities or you know pay tribute to the, the lords that were paying them. Um, or they'd have harps, you know. So it's, and in Welsh, cares means verse and music. It's the same word. So I have no qualms at all mixing them, but I mm. must say that I do appreciate poetry on its own as well because it's some, the best has great power mm. but that doesn't mean to say it's not fun you know m mixing both um disciplines but the one rule that i follow always is to let the poem lead um so you you listen to the poem you listen to it out loud and you you find music that enhances it because otherwise you suffocate it and that mm. would be the worst thing um, so it it really depends on the poem, like the Flame Lily one, for instance. Flame Lily kicks off the album. It's mm. by Mario, and she went into Abbey Road and just started reciting her poem, and it was strident and powerful and confident, and it threw open those doors and said, "I've arrived," which mm. is an album whose theme is Genesis. And I've arrived and look, these are my ancestors. These are my foremothers. And here we are, here we stand. You know, there was no way that I could put just some willy nilly little flutings around there or, you know, sniffle of a sound. Yeah. It had to second it or mirror image it or stand up to it equally. Mm. So that was really strong, almost alt hip hop ish drums. But, you know, we didn't edit her rhythm at all. We mimicked her rhythm absolutely with those drums. Mm. Um, and so it's a testament to how her inner rhythm is so spot on um, that it works the way it works. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. That is quite a wonder. It's like you know, what, what led that process. It's interesting you said that is what the, the poet's delivery sort of then led to the sort of, right, how does the music respond to that and, and match that and... and play off that and that's what's so interesting about the album all the way through is you've got these different soundscapes coming through and there's kind of a through line but it does there's a lot of changes in sounds as well which is again so i'm guessing each poet and each reading led you to a different slightly different interpretation of what the music should do for that which is again makes it such an interesting listen i wanted always to have this audio adventure but i've loved peter and the wolf and I loved Richard Burton reading Under Milkwood. Mm. I love the idea, you know, sometimes podcasters and document, radio documentaries take you on this adventure in sound. 
in different sounds. Um, and I, I wanted to do that with the album. So the main aim again was to take the, uh, the listener by the hand and take them somewhere and, and it, for it to be unpredictable, but well, mm. so ideally we take you through sort of more pastoral bucolic countryside areas alongside lochs, alongside canals, up hills, down hills, through to suburban areas, into the city centre of London, Cairo, Paris. And then at times we go down and into the inner world of, you know, heartbeats and um, ultrasound mm. echoes, that kind of inner inner world space when you put your hands over the ear and it's really close in. Mm. And because it's so much fun to have using recordings. I worked with a um, hidden orchestra. His name is Joe Atchison, uh, along with many, many musicians um, across the country, Mara Simpson, Jack McNeil on clarinet, and um, so many more. And strange things like Slovakian flute um, and dulcimer and all sorts of things, just to get specific sounds. Oh, Bristol pigeon sheds. And <laughs> yeah. um, just just to get the right sounds without, without wanting to get too literal, because that would be really clumsy. The words have to given space to be the magicians of these images you know getting the imagery in people's brains bring an extra sort of pair of wings to it you know you just don't want that doing the door slam no yes it's not yes yeah, not not ham radio play is it no um yeah no well what's so nice about this is it obviously while it's not entirely sort of linked you know there's, there's other elements but some of this we can sort of trace back to being given a recorder being given a a sort of slightly battered violin, you know, a teacher taking you out into nature and those things and sort of, you know, X years later, they become the reason you're somewhere in life and, and motivated and inspired by things, which I think is is a lovely sort of, if you sort of agree with that connection that those things have from, you know, early childhood into everything you go on to do later in life. Yeah, I, absolutely. You know, I, th I think the, the most precious, um, most precious sort of advice and, and help that I, got as a child was was to be encouraged in being open-eyed and open-minded mm. and to keep asking questions um, and that was thanks to all my teachers and my sort of bilingual heritage mm. well that's great i mean really interesting conversation we've had here we've we've, we've gone all over the place in, in poetry and music and, and school memories and jumpers catching fire and um, errant balls flying off costumes. So. <laughs> Lovely lung to say, yeah, because his poem, right, when I heard it, it's called Adventure Flight. Again, journeys. He, You know what I imagined? I, I don't know if you take me saying this, but I imagine Gregory's Girl, the film, mm. where they uh, lie down under a canopy of the tree and start dancing while watching the universe and the stars above them. And that's what I wanted to try and uh, mm. capture Joe Atchison for, for the sort of backdrop of his adventure flights because it feels like you could see the planets and shooting stars and everything that anything is possible that we're in this billions and billions and billions of stars it's a ridiculously impossible thing to to grasp but here we are hmm. yeah no it's lovely what i say it's it's a it's a great lesson and i'm sure people listening to this will, will be motivated to go and hear it from the way we've talked about it so that's great so yeah thank you you know so much for chatting to us because i think it's it's a lovely um thing to have to talk about the way poetry in school and and you know then we as i've said from your past but also now and how it's still inspiring you so clearly which, which is lovely and um yeah well you know good on those teachers all those years ago for everything they did yeah, just gracias
amigos. <laughs> Thank you ever so much for uh, welcoming me to the podcast, Dan. No problem at all.